It's good to see you here this morning. I, I have what I have been told is a very um, unusual, uh, kind of bizarre fantasy, um, sort of a bucket list item that I don't generally share with people, but I think it, it applies. Um, it's an unusual bucket list item, I'll admit that. I, um, I want to be attacked by a mountain lion. I'll let it sink in for a minute. Um, when I was a sophomore in high school, I met a guy who had been attacked by a mountain lion, and he had the coolest scar that I had ever seen. And it was like in that moment that I decided I would like someday to survive a mountain lion attack. I, um, I put an emphasis on survive a mountain lion attack because that seems important. And um, while we're inventing the story to go around this, my, my real dream would be to be attacked by a mountain lion while saving one of my children or all of my children and my wife from the mountain lion. I think that would be so cool. Now, before you think I'm super weird, because I know you're starting to question my judgment, let me just explain. I'm, I'm not into pain. It is not the mountain lion attack that I'm excited about. It's the scar that I want. I want the scar because then whenever anyone sees the scar, and the scar, I'm telling you, was so cool, whenever anyone sees the scar, they have to ask, why do you have that scar? And then I get to tell the story of when I was attacked by a mountain lion rescuing my wife and or children from the mountain lion. It, it says something about the scar implies something. The scar implies the story. It also implies what kind of a guy I am. It implies that I'm the kind of guy who would step in front of a mountain lion to save my wife and or children. And I think that would be so cool. That would be such a great story to have and a great story to tell. The reason I bring it up today is because I think our, our series, where we are in our series of Acts, is actually very similar. Wait for it. There are no mountain lions in our story today. But where we are in our series in Acts is we're finding the apostles in a place where they are going to undergo persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. And it's not that, and somehow in that they find joy. And it's not that they're into the pain, it's that they're into the scar. Because the persecution and the result of that persecution says something about what kind of men they are. It says something about who they love. It says something about how desperately they care about them and what they're willing to endure on behalf of that love. So if you would just recall with me for a moment where we are in our series in Acts. Some of you have been with us through the whole thing. Some of you, maybe you're just entering in this morning. So let me just give you a little bit of context for where we're going to be this morning. If you recall last week, we talked about staying on target in the face of opposition. What does it look like to stay on mission when we experience opposition as believers? The apostles are continuing the ministry of Jesus. After Jesus has gone, after his resurrection, they're continuing that work and they're proclaiming the good news of the Bible in Jerusalem and we're seeing thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. At the same time, the Holy Spirit is doing this work in them and through them and that people are being healed and there are signs and wonders and all of these things that testify to the fact that what they're doing in Jesus' name is legitimate. 
And this is drawing a lot of attention from people. This is drawing attention from the people in Jerusalem and it's drawing attention from the religious establishment in Jerusalem. So some good attention and some negative attention. And the result is that Peter and John, who have healed this lame man, who's been lame for 40 years and is now able to walk and jump and praise God, they've healed this man in the name of Jesus, and they're called before the religious leaders, and they say, hey, stop doing that. Stop teaching in the name of Jesus. Stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Stop healing people in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John say, "Um, no. No. And so not only is the early church facing this kind of opposition from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, but last week we saw they're facing opposition from within their own church. Because we saw as people are bringing gifts to the apostles to help continue the ministry of Jesus in the work of the church, we see Ananias and Sapphira who sell property and pretend to bring all of it to the apostles for the work of God, but they don't actually bring all of it. See, these gifts are being brought for the glory of God and for the continuation of his ministry, but Ananias and Sapphira want to gain some glory for themselves. So they sell this piece of property and they claim that they're giving it all over to the apostles to gain some kind of notoriety or some kind of status for themselves. And we see God respond to that in a serious way. Both Ananias and Sapphira drop dead because God takes his glory seriously. And he does this as a protection of his early church to keep them from becoming distracted and getting off target, the target being God and his glory and his mission. So as we come to our passage this week, we see at the end of where we left last week that despite this opposition from both within the church and outside the church, that it says more than ever, people are coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Despite opposition, the apostles and the early church stay on target, they stay on mission with God, and more than ever, people are being brought into the kingdom of God. So that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning, and that's where we're going to hopefully make this connection with mountain lions and scars and the early church. Before we do that, before we open the word this morning, would you just pray with me? Father God, we are so grateful to be here this morning, and I just pray that you would meet us here Would you speak to us through your word this morning? Would these be your words? Lord, would you change us as we hear from you? And would you allow us to focus this morning on your kingdom, on your mission, and on your priorities? We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible here this morning and you would like one, we have them on the aisles here. So if you don't have one, you can just raise your hand. We'll pass one down to you. If that's too awkward, just cheat off a neighbor. But I would say if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of these home with you. So now or after the service, grab one of those and take it home. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5. And if you're using our Bible, that's page 913. And we're picking up the story in verse 17. Of Acts. So we've just said that more than ever, despite all of this opposition, that more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, despite all these things that are happening. And then what we're going to see this morning is a lot of contradictions, a lot of contrasts. What I mean by that is we're going to see a lot of passages that start with but. And that's where we're going to start this morning. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 17. 
So despite all of these things that are going on, despite the fact that more and more people are coming to saving faith in Jesus, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So once again, we see the religious leaders taking action against the apostles who continue to proclaim the name of Jesus. And Luke, who's the author of Acts, does a little bit of editorializing here. Luke tells us why they're doing this. What is it that is motivating this action on their part? It's jealousy. They're motivated by jealousy. Now, most of us know what jealousy means, but let me just read for you a definition of it because I think it helps to show the heart of the men who are doing this. Jealousy we would define as resentment against a rival, resentment against a person enjoying success or advantage, or suspicion or fear of a rivalry. Where we see the religious leaders at this time is they're becoming more and more concerned about the message that the apostles are proclaiming. Because the more that they teach it, the more people are following it. And we see that their, their rate of alarm is going up. So their action is escalating. And as the following of the apostles grows, so the resentment of the religious leaders grows. And so the action that they take is to take the apostles, not just Peter and John, now it's all of the apostles. They take them and throw them in public prison. They're making a public statement to the Jews, saying that what these men are teaching and doing is not okay. But, verse 19, so in contrast to the work that God is doing, the high priest rises up and throws the apostles into jail. Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So the high priest interrupts God's work by putting the apostles in jail. God interrupts their work by taking them out again. And then we see this like this supernatural intervention on God's part. And this angel comes and he frees them. There's something that I think needs to be pointed out here. He doesn't free them to go home. He doesn't free them from jail and say, hey, go chill out on the couch for a while. God intervenes in a supernatural way. He releases them from prison, but he releases them on a mission. And he says, go to the temple and continue to preach about this life. We see their response to that. They are conspicuously and immediately obedient. He says, go and do this, and they go and do it. And what is it that they're teaching about? He says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. What does he mean? What is it that he's asking them to teach? The new life found in Jesus is the gospel. Now, we use that word a lot. And we try to define that word a lot because I think we need to do that. We need to define that. What is the gospel? What is the new life that's found in Jesus? Here's the message. It's that God loves us. That God loves us desperately and wants to be in right relationship with us. But that that relationship is broken. That relationship is fractured by our sin because on some level, each and every one of us has rejected God. Each and every one of us has told him that we can do it better than he can, that we prefer our way to his way. That's the gospel. 
And the harsh reality of that is that there's nothing we can do to repair our broken, fractured relationship with God. It is out of our power. We cannot remove our sin. We cannot wash it away. We can't clean ourselves up. And so we find ourselves in a desperate situation. The good news of the Bible, the gospel, is the contradiction to that is that God reaches into that. And God in his love for us reaches into that and fixes that. And he offers us forgiveness of that sin. And he offers us restoration of our relationship with him through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we talk about the apostles proclaiming the good news, this is what they're telling people. That the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has massive implications. Not only does it mean that our relationship with God is broken, it means that our relationship with God is restored through the person of Jesus. And that the chasm that exists between us and between God has now been bridged by the very cross itself. And that is good news. The gospel would say that when we trust in Christ alone for our salvation, that God looks at us and he sees us without sin. That what we could not do, what we could not fix, Christ on the cross absorbed for us and washed it away and then offers us new life, a life with him, a life in relationship with God. That's the good news. That's the gospel. So when the angel frees them from the prison and says, go tell them about this new life in Jesus, that's what he's talking about. That's the message that they're proclaiming. Some of you are thinking, well, I already know that. And that seems like a lot to take out of that passage. (laughs) He just freed them from prison. How do you get a whole gospel thing out of that? He frees them from prison on a mission. And God's rescue of us, as those who follow him, has the same implication. There is the same missional implication of our rescue. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God has intervened in a supernatural way to rescue you, to put you in right relationship with him. And he hasn't done that so you can go home and relax. He hasn't done that so you can just chill out and wait for him to come back. He says, no, I've rescued you, and now come on mission with me so that others can know the good news. So he frees them, he frees us, and says, come with me on a mission and tell people about this good news because it's not just for you, it's for everyone who would believe and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. The story continues. It's a long passage, so bear with me. We'll take it in bite-sized pieces. So... The priest throws him in jail. God takes him out. The priest doesn't know that, by the way, so that's where we're going to catch the story. So in verse 21, and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Well, that's embarrassing. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. That's pretty weird. 
nobody really knows that this has happened, and so the high priest gathers all the people together to put the apostles on trial, essentially, and he says, bring them here, and they come back, and I would think with some shame, say, hey, the prison's there, the guards are there, the doors are locked, there's nobody in it, and they're confused. Well, look what happens next. Verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So the high priest essentially sends the apostles to their room to think about what they've done and to think about not doing it anymore. That's why they've put them in prison. And they're going to bring them out and they're going to put them on trial. Well, not only are they not in their room, they're out doing exactly what they were put in prison for doing in the first place. This has to be very frustrating. And if you look at the language here, you know what's interesting? This witness who comes and says, hey, look, look what they're doing. They're doing exactly what the angel told them to do, like the same words. He said, go stand in the temple and teach them. And he says, what does he say? He says, hey, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. They're doing exactly what God asked them to do. Verse 26, then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So they have continually disrupted the work of the apostles over and over again, and God has intervened, and the apostles have been bold. And now they're starting to have some second thoughts about this. They have to change the way they approach them because God keeps interrupting their plans. And here's the thing. The apostles don't really have to go with them, but they do. It sounds like this situation is a little tenuous. It sounds like a few carefully chosen words on part of the apostles would start some kind of a riot. I mean, the religious leaders are very concerned about how this looks and what they're doing, but the apostles come with them because they're not, their agenda is not to cause trouble. Their agenda is to proclaim the good news of Jesus to anybody who will listen. It's important to make that distinction. They're not in this to cause some kind of a rebellion. They're in this to point people to Jesus. So they bring the apostles in, and verse 27, what are they going to say to them? And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And I just have to imagine, they've been waiting around now for a while, right? Because they went to get them, they couldn't find them, someone found them in the temple, they had to ask them nicely to come. They've got a lot of people here. This is pretty embarrassing. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So they bring the apostles in and they basically demand an answer. They say, hey, we told you not to do this and now you're doing it. What do you have to say for yourself? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the apostles, does not really offer a rebuttal. He just offers a confirmation. He said, yeah, that's what we're doing. He said, hey, you're doing exactly what we told you not to do. Yes, we are. 
because God told us to do that. And as we said before, you can decide whether we should listen to you or God, but we pick to listen to God. That's going to be our choice. And he says, on top of that, you guys are making this all about us. You guys are trying to implicate us in your message. And I just have to imagine Peter standing there saying, yeah, yes, we are making it about you. You killed Jesus, and God raised him from the dead. And now he's sitting at the right hand of God, and, he has, and we are witnesses to that. We saw it. And by the way, a lot of other people saw it too. And not only are we witnesses to it, the Holy Spirit is a witness to it. And that's why you're seeing this healing and these signs and wonders being done in the name of Jesus. And by the way, now you're witnesses to that. So yes, you're implicated in this. What is the problem with what we're saying? We're just saying what is true. He said, you're, you say we're preaching Jesus as Savior. Yes, we are preaching Jesus as the Savior. You say we're implicating you in his death. You killed him. I don't mean it metaphorically. You literally killed him. So yes, we are implicating you in his death. You say you intend to bring his blood on us. He says, we don't intend to bring his blood on you. His blood is on you. And how do you think they're going to respond to that? Not well. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So that went well. We see this continually, the boldness of the apostles over and over again to proclaim the name of Jesus regardless of the cost. But you have to think after a while, these men who keep questioning them, who keep trying to squelch what's happening, would begin to think, here's a group of common uneducated men, that's their own words, who are boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus no matter what we do to them. We cannot... We can't refute that. That's, that's a true thing that's happening. Here's a group of men who are healing people in plain sight of everyone, people that we know and have seen for a long time that are now healed in the name of Jesus. We can't refute that either. Here's a group of men who we just put into prison, and then when we get, we get there to get them out, they're gone. That somehow they show up in the temple and they're still preaching. And we can't really refute that either because that just happened in front of all of our friends and our coworkers. It also seems like a group of men who are not going to shut up and people are listening to what they're saying. And they cannot stomach that. They will not stand for it. These men are so consumed with their idea of what the Savior was supposed to be. They are so consumed with what their idea of the Messiah was supposed to be that they absolutely refuse to acknowledge anyone else, regardless of the evidence that is stacked up against them. And I, I think we can fall into this. I think we can fall into this same thing, where we can say, well, I, I believe in God. I just, it's hard for me to believe in the God of the Bible, because there are some things in here that I disagree with. So I, I just can't really believe in that God. Because I like the Jesus' love part, but there's a lot of this Old Testament stuff that I take issue with. And so we're going to put up some boundaries and say, God, I am okay with you as long as you don't cross these sort of boundaries I've set up that are uncomfortable for me if these things are true about who you are. We say we can't, but the truth is, it's just that we won't. It's not that I can't believe in that God, it's that I won't believe in that God. I choose not to. Maybe I, I refuse to. 
And the Jewish leaders have fallen into that same trap. Jesus doesn't look like the Savior that they expected. And so no matter what evidence is presented to them, they refuse to acknowledge him. I won't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the statement that they're making. Verse 34, the story continues. And I think here's our last sort of contradiction of the morning. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel. So we keep getting these contradictions, and now we get our last one. One guy, I think, is thinking about this. He's maybe thinking about that list we just went through. He says, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So he's like, hold on, we need a little conference. Can we take them out? Because I need to say something, and I think we need to hear something. Verse 35, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. So he stands up and he says, hold on a minute, guys. We better think about this. Because here's the thing. We've seen the track record of people who start their own uprising, of people who think, start things that are counter to what God wants, and those things go away. But here's the thing. If these guys are telling the truth, if these things that they're saying are true, we better get out of the way. And so we better be very careful what we do with them. And it says that they took his advice. Well, that's sort of. <laughs> Remember, they, they wanted to kill them. So I think this wisdom from Gamaliel has maybe de-escalated the situation a little bit. But look what they do. When they had called in the apostles, so they bring them back in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. We're not, probably not talking about a slap on the wrist. This is not like a swat. This is a, a whipping, a, a legitimate beating. We know that they're not beaten, they're not like crippled from the beating because they, they leave under their own power, but this is probably a severe beating that they undergo. They've probably left some skin behind. And it says this, then they left the presence of the council, that's the apostles, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. So what happens? They're beaten and they rejoice. It seems weird, right? It's, that seems strange. But who else was beaten? Jesus. And so the apostles find in themselves in a place where they need to suffer like Jesus for the name of Jesus. And their response is, hey, that's cool. That's a scar that I want because that scar tells a story. That scar is going to tell a story of how much I love God and what I'm willing to endure on his behalf. 
That tells the story of who I love. It's as if they walk out and they say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I have been counted worthy of suffering for the sake of his name. And how great is that? Didn't feel great, not into the pain, but into the scar because the scar tells a story. Do you see how over the weeks the response of the leadership has escalated? What started as sort of a verbal, hey, stop doing that, has now turned into legitimate, we are going to beat you if you continue to do this. And we'll see a few chapters from now, it continues to escalate. A few chapters from now, people are martyred, literally killed, for speaking the name of Jesus and preaching in his name. And what we see that's happened here is that the opposition to the gospel has escalated as the response to the good news has escalated. More than ever, people are coming into the kingdom. It's working. God's rescue plan is in effect and the opposition is in full effect, and it's going to escalate at the same rate. But the point of the story is not that they're being persecuted. The point of the story is that they're going to continue to proclaim the message anyway. You see, the end of chapter 5, they didn't cease to teach and preach in the name of Jesus from house to house and in the temple. They're just going to keep doing what God has told them. They're going to stay on mission. The mission isn't compromised. And I think when we look at this, this story this morning, we see this like this cool story of God rescuing his people out of prison, this sort of supernatural rescue of the apostles out of prison so that they can continue to preach the good news. And I just want us to be reminded that that is our story as well. There is a supernatural that rescue that has taken place for those of us who trust in the name of Jesus. For those of us who know him and follow him, God has gone to to unbelievable lengths to rescue us. And I think the mountain lion scar and the mountain lion story would be super cool. I think the apostles, (coughs) excuse me, have a way cooler story. The scars that are all over their back and all over their chest, having been whipped for the name of Jesus for proclaiming him, that is a way cooler scar and a way cooler story. But there's one guy I know that has a cooler scar than anybody, and that's Jesus himself. Jesus has scars that imply a story, and that story is how desperately he loves us. And those scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side and in his head tell a story that has to be asked about. Where did those scars come from? Why do you have those? I have a great story to tell you. Let me tell you how I got these scars. Let me tell you the story of how deeply I love people and how desperately I want to be reunited with them, how desperately I seek relationship with them. And I have the scars to prove my love. How do we respond to that? How do we respond to that truth, to the story that those scars tell? I would say we just soak it up. We just soak up the fact that that is true about God, that he loves us that desperately that he's willing to go to those lengths on our behalf. And it's possible you're here this morning and you don't know him. You don't have a relationship with him. You're still in that place where your relationship with God is fractured and it's separated because of your rejection of him, because of the sin in your life that keeps you from him. And you may not know him, but he knows you. 
He knows you. He knows everything about you. And I mean everything. And I know that that feels heavy when we say that. But get this. He loves you anyway. He loves you desperately. He loves you enough to wear those scars, to hang on that cross, to die in your place, to soak up your sin so that you can have right relationship with God. How cool is that? And soak it up. That is a true thing. That is real. And I want you to recognize that this morning. For those of you who know Jesus, you claim that already. You trust in him for your salvation. That is my Savior. He has absolved me of my sin, and I know that to be true. Then I would just say, he has rescued you in a supernatural way. And he did not rescue you to sit around. To just say, hey, thanks for saving me. He said, hey, come with me. I'm inviting you to be a part of my mission to proclaim that this is true to people who don't know it yet. That our heart would ache for people who don't know that that's true, who don't know how desperately God loves them. And we want them to know. I hope that our response to that would be that we would soak up the truth of that and we'd be motivated to join God in his mission to participate so that when it gets hard, so that when we suffer hardship or even persecution for the name of Jesus, that we would say, cool, I wanted a scar like that because that kind of scar tells a story and I can point them to someone who has an even cooler scar than I do. That's what I would want us to say as a church. I would want our response to be that Jesus gave everything for me, so Jesus gets everything from me. And that's where I leave it. Jesus, you gave everything for me, and so you get everything from me. That's the price I'm willing to pay. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you are willing to go through all of this on our account. Lord, we can't even begin to understand the suffering of the cross. We can't even begin to understand what it is that you've done for us. And I pray that you would help us to gain some kind of understanding of that. Lord, for those who are here this morning who don't know you, would you draw them to yourself? Lord, would you compel them to come to you and have their sin washed away by your loving sacrifice? Lord, for those of us who do know you, I pray that you would compel us to be people who live for you with reckless abandon, that you would get everything from us because you've given everything for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.